0: Welcome to season 8 of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, A Transatlantic Conversation. I'm your host, Penn South Africa board member Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer, and at each event there is an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings, and it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we're in solidarity with detained Chinese writer and journalist Dong Yu Yu. Dong Yu Yu is a commentator and deputy head of the editorial department for Ming Daily, a state-owned newspaper where he has worked since 1987. He was awarded a Nieman Fellowship at Harvard University in 2006-2007 and was a visiting scholar of Japan's Keio University in 2010 and Hokkaido University in 2014. Police initially detained Dong Yu Yu on 21 February 2022 at a hotel in Beijing, while he was having lunch with a Japanese diplomat, was also briefly detained. On 23 March, 2023, authorities informed Dong's family that his case had been sent to court for trial on charges of espionage, though no hearing date has been set and the process may take several months or longer before trial commences. His family have been denied contact with him for the duration of his detention and he has only been granted one meeting with his lawyer. For the first six months of his detention, he was held in, and I quote, residential surveillance at a designated location, end quote, a form of detention which United Nations human rights experts described as tantamount to enforced disappearance. If convicted, he faces between 10 years and life imprisonment. Penn International believes that Dong Yu Yu is being unjustly detained in reprisal for his writing and interacting with foreign nationals to help inform his global views. In violation of his right to freedom of expression enshrined under China's constitution and international human rights law, Penn SA joins Penn International and Penn centers around the world in calling on the Chinese authorities to drop the charges against Dong Yu Yu and to release him. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. In this episode of Season 8, Jared Thompson and Tyreek White talk with Kanyam Charlie, about their debut novels, the Institute for Creative Dying and We Are A Haunting. They reflect on their publication experiences, craft, avoiding cliches, writing social critiques, death, religion, and transatlantic history. Kanyam Charlie holds an MA in cultural reporting and criticism from New York University. She writes about culture, literature, politics, and fashion, and she has been published in The New Yorker, Africa as a Country, the johannesburg review of books and in other places she's the author of it's not inside it's on top memorable moments in south african advertising and she has published an introduction to the book last interview and other conversations billy Holiday.
1: it would be remiss of me not to highlight what beautiful writers and pro stylists you both are and i think as a critic one of my greatest frustrations is that I will often read reviews of books written by black writers or writers of colour, and I will hear no mention of craft, none whatsoever. And it's so frustrating because it's almost as if that technical skill is sidelined in favour of hyper-focusing on the so-called issues.
0: Jared Thompson is a literary and cultural studies researcher and educator and works as a lecturer in the English department at the University of Pretoria he was a winner of the 2020 afritondo prize and has been the recipient of several prestigious scholarships his debut novel the institute for creative dying is published through picador africa and afritondo uk
2: i was very interested in how do people improvise when your body is throwing out these questions of death of failure of limitation what do they scramble for and lean on and sometimes the scrambling is for a lover or is for a worldview, or is for religion, or is for psychedelic mushrooms,
0: for example. Tariq Rashon White is a writer, musician, and educator from Brooklyn. He's currently the media director of Lamp Black Lit, a literary foundation which seeks to provide mutual aid and various resources to black writers across the diaspora. He has received fellowships from Kalaloo Writing Workshop and the New York State Writers Institute, among other honors. He holds an MFA from the University of Mississippi and is the
3: author of We Are A Haunting, published by Astra House. The entire story centers around this idea that death is not the end, especially in places where they want us dead, they try to kill us. I think that's so powerful. And that begins in a spiritual practice from uh, centuries ago. So it becomes radical for me to have Key to have Kali, have this radical love for each other across time, across space, despite death. It allows me to write about history. And it also speaks to how we grieve each other and how we heal. Thank
0: you for joining us for this conversation.
1: Welcome to Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a Transatlantic Conversation. This is the sixth episode of season eight. My name is Kanyam Jadi, and I am very excited to be speaking to Tyreek Rashawn White and Jared Thompson. I'm based in Johannesburg, and so is Jared, while Tyreek joins us from Oxford, Mississippi in the U.S. We are recording this conversation from our homes or offices, so don't be too alarmed if you hear some background noises or ambient sounds. And before we get started on discussing We Are a Haunting and the Institute for Creative Dying, I thought I might ask our authors to read an extract from their novels. Tariq, Jared, please feel free to add any context or detail that may help situate us in the novel. I think we'll start with you, Jared, and then move over to Tariq. That's okay. Take it away.
2: Thanks, Kanya. super excited to be joining you all for this. So this extract that I'm reading takes place roughly in the the middle of the novel and two of the institute's facilitators, Mustafa and the mortician, are at the mortician's parents' home and the lights have gone out and there is no water. Very similar to uh, current uh, situations in Johannesburg. So yeah, here we go. Ishan left the buckets out in the rain water poured from the gutters, gushed through drain pipes, flooded the road at the end of the cul-de-sac. The drainage system was blocked. Despite reports to the municipality to unblock it, the garbage in the stormwater drain had not been dislodged. It had formed an impenetrable plug that grew thicker with each season. The real problem, Ishan concluded, was the narrowness of the system as a whole. It was never meant for this amount of waste, and no number of violent storms charging from the mine dumps could release it. The buckets filled up quickly. Ishan carried them in two by two, dropping one off at each room, ending with his daughters. He half expected Saisha to ridicule him, mutter, silly man, and close the door. But as he turned the corner towards the guest room, he heard a gentle thank you. The tone of her voice made him want to go back and check in on her. From what he'd heard earlier at dinner, Saisha's remonstration had ended in a dramatic walk-off. One to the kitchen, the other to her bedroom. A door slammed, pots banged. The outage had brought with it a forced silence in the house that wouldn't have been there if there had been electricity. I'm leaving a bucket for the toilet in your room. Water's out. He knocked once at a door plastered with faded stickers of bubblegum ice cream cones and headed for his bedroom. His daughter was not alone. Mustafa could be heard muttering in a frantic tone, almost pleading. Ishan had believed his daughter when she'd explained that there was nothing between her and Mustafa, save their joint venture. He knew her well enough to know that once an idea enraptured her, it took a lot to distract. Mustafa would have to transform into a cold corpse if he were to ever stand a chance. He laughed, replaying the first time he noticed her interest in the work. She was ten. He was working late on account of the Gauteng bombings. Two on consecutive days, one at Jemison Taxi Rank, the other at Bree. Thirty-one people killed. One of the craziest two days in 94. The bodies that weren't burned beyond recognition had been sent to their mortuary because he was considered one of the best embalmers in the business. Saisha had decided to sleep at her mother's. It was a nervous time. People held their loved ones close. Law and order felt its most porous, as if at any moment the entire country could be made, dismantled, and remade. Ishan undressed at the foot of his bed, piling the wet clothes in a corner. He imagined what Pepita had looked like at the top of the stairs leading down to the mortuary hair braided, Mickey Mouse slippers on her feet. She couldn't sleep because a stinkwood branch kept banging up against her window. He saw no option but to invite her down into the sterile white light. She knew what was down there because Saisha had warned her not to go to the basement when Ma and Dad were working on bodies. Come see, come, he had said. It took some prompting, but once she was on her way down, nothing could stop her. The dead were calling. Bobita never flinched at the sight of them, singed in metal trays, heads rested on blocks of wood. He used to fear his work would traumatize her, but on that night, she showed curiosity. How do you make them ready, Daddy? Ishan climbed into bed, skin damp. The storm had faded into a listless drizzle against the window. He listened to the water dripping off the roof, thinking how drenched the garden must be. First, we wash them. Here... While I do it, you can massage the feet. See how stiff they are." He turned onto his right side, coaxing sleep, breathing deeply to slow his thoughts, the same way he had taught her to do. Good. Now, with the lady's mouth wide shut, you can shape her mouth into anything you want it to be. Happy, angry, or sad. Most people prefer the face blank, like this. See? Ishan cupped his cheek with the palm of his right hand, smelling the plastic from the buckets. Sleep came unexpectedly. His mind drifted down towards the mortuary, his daughter, her Mickey Mouse slippers, ducking and diving in between blood that ran from the drainage tubes of corpses across the white embalming tables towards the blue bean-shaped buckets where it pooled thickly.
1: Thank you, Jared.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jared, for that. I appreciate it. Just a bit of context for this excerpt. You know, this is a story, I guess, told from several perspectives, one being um, a mother, one being her son, and across several, I guess, decades. And this, in particular, is the mom, uh, and this takes place in the 80s in New York. Mama would tell me the story of Igbo Landing. She was a sad woman growing up, lost all her family to the sun-worn south and its many afflictions. Here in New York, her lover died in the street, but only after he left her. Anyway, Igbo Landing is the story of a people who were kidnapped, chained together to be sold in some strange land, and decided to kill their captors instead, throwing them overboard. The stolen... Who were then free, walked back the way they came, back through Dunbar Creek and across the freezing Atlantic. It was called a mass suicide. Mama said they were going to march right back to the shores of West Africa, singing to the water spirits. Years later, when I moved out for good, I had already tried to kill myself. I still consider it in the dark, not a creek or shallow in sight. Just like Mama, I am a sad woman. In the last years of the 80s, I worked in a department store in the city where my boss often confused me with the other black girl who worked there. Keisha, could you make sure the men's tie display is tidy? She said today, the beginning of May already warm and stiff with overcast. Margie was tall for her jacket and sheaf dress, her hair an orange tuft, she shoved into a bun. It's key, I blurted out. On the first floor, dear. It's Key, I said louder. My name, just Key. Isn't that what I said? No, you said Keisha. I'm not seeing the difference, she said. And I walked ahead, the self-importance of a retail manager overseeing a near-evangelical dogma. I hurried along beside her. Keisha usually closes. This is important to you, Margie could understand. Well, it's just, you know, my name. I get mixed up. You understand, don't you? I'm not racist or anything. I'm sure, I said. We were by the woman's display, dark and tailor suits over willowy mannequins with their toes pointed. You mix up the two Jewish girls in perfume just the same. Marta and Jenny? Jenna and Martha, I corrected her. Margie's eyebrows knitted together, had grown bushy and acicular because she hadn't plucked them in the break room like she normally did. She considered me the display section and a drop shipment from Wanako or G.H. Bass, which she would tend to later. Key, you've got it. The Ties? I hung out at a strand between shifts or when I was afraid to go home. Its corner, some cobblestone blocks away from NYU, was full of punks and addicts, skaters, artists, school kids from small towns or upstate or out west, Inside were students with thick-rimmed glasses, girls with dirty blonde hair or dyed hair, young white boys in stonewashed and bright t-shirts. A white girl in a denim wash top follows me around the store, as disinterested as I am. I picked out what I liked, hid in a corner surrounded by bookshelves. I set down my bags and sat for what seemed like hours. And on this day, I read a story about a man who, on his dying mother's wish, sets off to find his father in a far-off town somewhere in Mexico. When he goes, he finds that everyone in the town is dead and has been dead for a long time. He sinks into madness, not knowing whether he's been talking to ghosts or illusions within his own mind. I wondered the same thing as I rode the subway to its last stop in Brooklyn, if this town is but a place for the half-living. Actually, I think I've seen ghosts. I've had this dream of meeting people I don't know to exist since I was 14. There was this woman I saw around with a young boy, always in front of the strip mall on Pennsylvania and She had a scar behind her ear, her nightgown worn at the bottom where it covered her feet. A look of longing had settled across her face, her skin a deep chestnut that cracked at the creases. One day she looked up for what seemed like the first time ever across the parking lot toward the bus stop, at me. The longing turned to something more, something I thought I recognized.
1: Excellent. Thank you both for those lovely readings. There's nothing better than hearing an author read their work in their own voice. Thank you, it was lovely. So, like I mentioned to you both before we started this conversation, I'd like to preface I'll talk with an apology and I'll explain why. Jared, I've been quite a vocal admirer of your work from the time I read your short story, Gutting Instincts in the Johannesburg Review of Books. And Tyreek, this was my first introduction to you as a writer and what an introduction it's been. And as I was thinking about some of the questions I could ask you both, I got a little nervous because I thought to myself, I don't know if I'll be able to capture just how accomplished these novels are. I mean, you cover so much ground with this graceful agility and light-footedness, given the nature of the topics that you're exploring. And I think what makes it even more impressive is the fact that they are your debut novels. So I'm curious to know, how has this experience been for you both so far? In the publishing world, you place so much emphasis on the performance of the debut novel and the debut novelist. So I'm keen to just get a temperature check. You know, how are you feeling? What's going on? I think we'll start with you, Tariq.
3: It's been fun. It's been fun. Um, It's been enlightening you know, the business of publishing or, or the the industry of publishing. But, you know, you know, I had that in mind being entrenched in it, you know, what stories get highlighted, which authors from which networks get praised or exalted. So for me, it's just been all about connecting on on a ground level with like independent booksellers, going into bookstores, you know, meeting people who love the work, who read the work. You know, this book is is based in, like, the community I grew up in. So just seeing the the kind of response from people in my community, in my neighborhood, you know, my folk, that's sort of the most rewarding part for me. Um, uh, That, like, love or that, like, um, being able to see yourself in literature, this, like, high art kind of capital L literature thing having people who like look like me who come from similar working class environments seeing how they take to it how they respond to the world or or the the archives that i've like written into that's the best part of the whole thing Mm.
2: yeah yeah i resonate with what you say Tyreek. especially seeing people that you've grown up with and like your friends and family read the work and then they know you. They've lived, you know, chapters of your life with you, so they can see. Oh, this is. I see where we we got this and what and where you got this scene or whatever. And it may not, it may be true. It may not be. But it's it's nice to see, it reflected in mm-hmm. their sifting through of your work and they're yeah. trying to like make it make sense for them. Mm-hmm. And then, the experience of, after publishing the novel and then having the different conversations with people, yeah. seeing seeing it, the novel being told to you in a weird way, like people have their favorite characters, like, oh, I didn't think that would be your favorite character, why? And then they make these observations, and then you're seeing your novel through all these different people mm. that you are conversing with, which is the nice experience as well, that it is viewed in so many different perspectives. Yeah. People tell you your novel back to you, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I see how you saw it like that, but that wasn't the intention, but it's still fun to have you tell me the novel as well.
3: <laughs> and you find new yeah. new kind of things about it or new ways or like how things you wrote came across to certain people from whether you're a similar background or different backgrounds that's interesting as well
2: it's like the character that i struggled with the most tobias end up being most people's favorite character it's like well i really didn't think that it would come across like that. I really struggled with this person. Maybe because in my mind, I knew I was struggling. So I was like really focused on getting this character right. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I've dabbled quite unsuccessfully in fiction, but I, you know, when I have conversations with fiction writers, they often tell me that's the most interesting part is seeing how these characters that they've developed translate to a reader. And something that I... Noticed with both your novels is that social critiques are weaved into the lives of your characters. And I obviously can't account for all of them, but Tyreek, when I think of We Are a Haunting, the character Audrey reveals the seemingly intentional dysfunction of the public housing system in New York City, Mm. which I think is symptomatic of how poverty is often pathologized in America Mm. and how it's treated like an individual failure or a moral failure, especially amongst poor and working class black and brown Americans. And then Jared, when I think of the Institute for Creative Dying, you mentioned Tobias, right? And I too, struggled with him because I saw someone whose expressions of misogyny and homophobia informed some of the ways in which certain men define traditional masculinity in South Africa. And then a character that I felt a great deal of sympathy for was Angelique because she revealed the perils of commodifying your trauma and your pain and pretty much everything about your life for online consumption. So these are very topical critiques, but I never felt like they robbed your characters of their texture and their individuality. They read like people. They didn't read like pamphlets. And I think what that did for me, it gave the social critique urgency because I felt like this is happening to a fully realized human being. So I'm curious to know, what came first when you were conceptualizing the novel? Was it the character or the social critique, or did it just kind of happen on its path? Uh, Jared, I'll let you take this one first.
2: I think it was different for, for each of the characters. I think for for Tobias, I grew up in sort of so-called colored community, or otherwise mixed race or creolized community. And I had experienced that, that kind of masculinity growing up and also impressing on, on me. And so masculinity itself and picking it apart and picking apart its foils and its strengths and, and all those dynamics of it and those insecurities was also important for me to, to explore in fiction. I think from the start, I started writing short stories. Masculinity has always been this thing that I returned to to try to work out and so with Tobias and also hearing the stories of mixed race men or colored men in the community and just the general way aunties and aunts talk about their experiences with men with their husbands with their lovers that left it, it culminated in Tobias and I was kind of writing towards that lived history that I had heard about in family conversations. and then with Angelique I think it came about kind of being on social media and seeing the way people portray themselves and wondering what's behind that, but also being interested in the fact that I too, I also have the vanity. I also want exposure. So what is this human need for self-exposure, for self-commodification that yeah. we all have? We all ask sus- I mean, maybe we're not all suspicious of it to the same degree, but we all have it. And I wanted to use that from myself and explore that with Angelique for example, with someone that takes it as the be-all and end-all. So for a lot of it, was like, I have to be truthful here in, in the sense that I also have vain moments where I also want to commodify and overexpose myself. So I think it, it was a level of truth-telling for myself. I have to be honest with myself if I'm going to write this character. This character is not very different from me. I also have these moments. Same with Tobias. Tobias is not totally different from me. I also say problematic things, and I need to own up to that as well. So I think that's where the, maybe the humanness of the writing came from. I have to own up to the fact, like, I also have moments that these characters have, but just for them, it's amplified. Right. This is the way they navigate the world.
1: Tariq?
3: I agree with kind of that, that truthfulness, you know, on a personal level, on a deep level, on a familial level, on a relationship level. So for me, thinking about those honest moments within character, I think that informs the social, the political. You know, just by proxy, like writing about a Black woman in New York, in America, in the 80s, post-Great Migration, just all these moments, it's going to come across. It's going to be embedded If if you're honest about, like, the people in the community you're writing about. And also just thinking about the setting, right? Geographically, this community. When I was growing up, and I I say it in the book, many of the characters don't encounter white folk in sort of like intimate, friendly, platonic sort of settings. Most of their encounters are in these kind of structural ways. They're teachers, they're their principals. They approve their applications for, you know, apartments or jobs. Um, hiring managers. I think on that level, so it wasn't just about writing, I solely want to write about black people, I mean, or black and brown people. I mean, yes, I did, but that was just the nature of this environment. So I think sometimes that truthfulness can be difficult, but like Again, showing up to that fact, right? On a craft level. So like depicting this, depicting on a everyday level, the systemic wear that occurs on like a body, a black body, a brown body, a woman's body. I think just being incremental and just being very attentive and working on that small scale. I, I think like right? it's gonna come across. It's gonna it's gonna weave itself into the story.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned craft because it would be remiss of me not to highlight what beautiful writers and pro stylists you both are. And I think as a critic, one of my greatest frustrations is that I will often read reviews of books written by Black writers or writers of color, and I will hear no mention of craft, none whatsoever. And it's so frustrating because it's almost as if that technical skill is sidelined in favor of hyperfocusing on the so-called issues. And even the way the issues are discussed are pretty patronizing. So I really want to emphasize that I loved the writing in both of your novels. And if I may, I just want to throw out a couple of lines for the listeners. I mean, Tariq, in your novel, you write that chimneys gag out heavy smoke housing pumps stale heat into apartments, and that voices rake the walls. You describe that maybe the only way to escape history is not to have a body at all. Jared, you write that hospice patients are ghosts on wreck rowboats incapable of redirecting course from the approaching cliff. You write that a character, and I'm keeping it vague for the sake of spoilers, trains themselves to accept loss as an immovable state of the world grieving its limits. In my notes, I actually compared your descriptions of plant life and animal life, which are dime a dozen in your novel, Jared, to those of a zoologist or a botanist looking to understand the subject of their study. I don't think you can produce language like this without A, a lot of revision, I imagine, but also an array of influences. So could you Walk me through the process of getting your sentences to sing and perhaps chat a little about some of your literary and even non-literary influences. I think I'll stop with you, Jared.
2: Okay. Um, so while I was in the middle of writing in the Institute, I was reading Iron Daddy Roy's The God of Small Things. And I kind of always put it off. Everyone would say, oh, it's such a great book, you have to read it. It always puts me off when people tell me it's a great book because I want to like let the hype die down and then read the book. So I finally got to reading it and was blown away as expected, actually. But I was more interested in kind of what what is it that's blowing me away? What is she doing? And. I took a lot of inspiration from the way that she will take an object, for example, and weave it into its environment, but also showing how the cha- how it changes in the environment, show change in time, show change in social circumstance. Well, I'm remembering this one scene where she's describing a car outside the house and how it's over time it slowly decays and how even like a bird takes up residence in it. And I was like, oh, this is this is really interesting. I can draw a lot of inspiration from this. And then definitely Kei Silo The Quiet Violence of Dreams, a tome of note. I think I really took to heart because in that book, he uses multiple perspectives. And I think it has always been something that has interested me, like using multiple perspectives to tell a story, which is what I try to do and try to weave as well. And then I read a lot of poetry as well. So, I mean, Philippa Yardavillas, Jenna Gardini, Jacques Goods here, I'm currently reading now. So I've always had a poetic leaning. And so I think I wanted, like you say, with the botanical world and stuff, I really try to, okay, let's research let's get the scientific language of what's happening down, but then how do I infuse my poetry? How do I make this poetic? And how do I draw out some sort of insight, especially in terms of death and dying and regeneration? How do I draw out those metaphors that are there in the scientific language? I just, I'm just i just there to find them and use and to, like, kind of amass them so that as you're reading the novel, they just build and build and build and you get a sense of what the novel's trying to push towards without being pamphlety or didactic or preachy. So I think... And making that shift also to, like, just focus on the image, the poetry, and the processes that are in the world already. You just need to observe them incrementally. You don't need to blurt your message out from the hills. It, It will be there in the story. So I think hearing that being told to me from mentors, writer mentors, and also seeing it work on the page, I was like, okay, this seems to be working. I'm going to run with this kind of balance. Yeah.
3: Tariq? I love that kind of finding the poetry and like the natural... Of the scientific, because it's already there. Yeah, um, that's how I felt. Because, you know, again, like the main setting is the city, this kind of industrial, mm. urban landscape. But I like to think that I troubled it a bit, and that's mostly being down here in Mississippi and the South. I troubled it with a lot of natural language as well. You know, focusing on the fact that this typical urban housing project, is it's on marshland. It, it's surrounded by swampland. And sort of going into the geography of the land, I think that helped me find different language other than typical kind of, I guess, urban New York mm-hmm. stories. And also just, just out of that as well, just uh, thinking of sentences three-dimensionally or like with all five senses. Mm-hmm. So... Trying to tap into, you know, different textures, different smells, the way things feel, the way, even the heaviness of the chimney smoke in folks' lungs, even that, you know, and it has, you know, kind of social political connotations to it as well, but it's those five senses and tapping into that. And, you know, I'm the same. I I read a lot of poetry, I think, because again, like poets, they pay so much attention to you know what the line does what the language does sometimes like we write stories we get lost in the plot and the characters but which is great but yeah like poets you know language is like key so for me like vivie francis john Keane, carl phillips and just literary i was reading a lot of jasmine ward a lot of tony morrison Jazz in particular, very much informed how I wrote about New York and sort of the great migration, you know, parts of the South. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Thinking about sentences three-dimensionally, that's so on point. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pose some questions to you individually, and I'll start with you, Tariq. I was very touched with, or rather, I was very touched by the reverence with which you wrote about this gift that Key and Kali shared in terms of being able to speak to the dead. I'm generalizing here, but I think in certain parts of the West, there's a tendency to treat supernatural gifts like a party trick or a gimmick, which you thankfully avoid. And it actually brought to mind the way some of our cultures here in South Africa engage with supernatural gifts. For some of us, we see it as a calling, like an invitation from the ancestors to serve as an intermediary between the spiritual and the physical realm. And there's even a passage where Key describes herself as a translator, a tongue, mouth for the dead who still wandered the hills. And one of the great strengths of your novel, of course, is the sense of community that you show in this East New York neighborhood where Key and Carly live, But your approach also got me thinking about the spiritual community between the diaspora and the continent. That despite centuries of slavery, colonialism and genocide, there are these divine customs and traditions that we share by virtue of having common ancestors. In the reading that Mm -hmm. you started our conversation off with, you mentioned the Igbo landing. Did you intend on evoking this idea of spiritual community between the diaspora and the continent?
3: For sure, yeah, yeah. A lot of the spiritual basis of this begins in parts of West Central Africa. A lot of the through line that I wanted to bring was that kind of colonial destination how it began in africa you know and became similar but other things in the caribbean and in the americas so a lot of the spiritual practices a lot of same figures oshun yamaya these figures kind of appear in other kind of syncretic religions in the caribbean so you have the Igbo in, in West Africa, then you have Vodou in Haiti, then you have Santaria in, in Cuba, and then you have all of these elements that occur in hoodoo in New Orleans. Mm. And so I wanted to create that kind of through line because, you know, they don't have a, there's no structured spiritual practice to describe what Key goes through. But it's sort of all these things. It is this thing, you know, that's been transformed through colonialism, through imperialism, across the diaspora. So that's completely intentional. It's completely mindful of, you know, the the entire story centers around this idea that death is not the end, especially in places where they want us dead. They try to kill us. I think that's so powerful and that begins in a spiritual practice from uh, centuries ago. So it becomes radical for me to have key, to have Kali, have this radical love for each other across time, yeah. across space, despite death. <laughs> it allows me to write about history, it allows me to write about these moments throughout. It's such an amazing frame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it also speaks to how we grieve each other and how we heal, I think, on a personal level, but also maybe on a diasporic level. Um, maybe it's a return to in order to find new and alternative ways forward. So yeah, that's it's very intentional. And I loved everything you said uh, about it. You you explained it such a perfect way. Yeah,
1: no, of course. It came through and I really appreciated reading that. It was lovely. I Just want to shift to you, Jared. You explore the ethics of the palliative care provided by the Institute against a backdrop of issues that are very South African. And as the novel was unfolding, I wondered whether the institutional shortcomings of places like hospices or hospitals justified some of the practices carried out by the mortician and Mustafa, who are, as you mentioned, the institute's facilitators and founders. And without giving too much away, it kind of reminded me of how quickly moral causes can degenerate and be corrupted by the very same forces they wish to overcome. And then it made me question, to what extent can people who are terminally ill, chronically ill, mentally ill, provide consent to imaginative ways of dying in a climate that actively worsens their condition. I know the death positive movement inspired a lot of your ideas for the novel. Did you have any concerns about broaching a topic that was not only ethically delicate, but also quite sensitive?
2: I think I did. I did have reserves about it, especially in the way, like how was I going to write the story? How was I going to write this kind of cosmological tome to, to death and regeneration in a way that still valued human life and the stories and the emotion and the grief that comes with losing, with the losing relationships and having these absences. And I think while I was also with you mentioning like the kind of institutional failures all around us very near to the publication of this novel there was a a news article about a kind of impromptu drug center set up in the western cape for people who couldn't drug rehabilitation center for people who couldn't afford it and it reminded me oh wow so like people are trying to make these infrastructures for transformation or for healing outside of the normative sphere. Like, it is happening. And there's so many different ways that you go can go about it. And it just struck me like, oh, okay, you know, we are trying to form communities of survival wherever we are, because I think so, so often we are on the fringes in different ways. We're all on the fringes in different ways, whether it's in sexuality or gender or class or race. We're all kind of pushed by the institutional failures wherever we are in South Africa. And just a general... I think while I was also writing it, I was really focused on the kind of infrastructural decay I was seeing in my city. And okay, well, if if a people like the Magician and Mustafa wanted to make this place, what kind of obstacles would they face? And so, yes, they have, they bring all these really amazing ideas and kind of therapies that they want to instill. But what happens when it's like on the ground and it's real and you have to defend something or you have to you want to carry forward something, but you're faced with crime or you're faced with municipality failures. How do you pick apart your sort of zen approach to life when your life is at risk? So I was dealing with those kind of split decision moments as well. There's one heavy scene in the novel which explores that, those kind of split decision moments where you have to defend something that you prize. So I think a lot of the time it's like also... Dealing with attachment, how much do we allow ourselves to stay attached to our dreams and how can our dreams then turn on us because we want to hold, want to fix them and we're like, this is my dream and this is the dream I've imagined and it must stay like this. But sometimes you have outside forces that want to impose on that or, or take that. So how do we negotiate that? And in the negotiation, I think for the musician, maybe especially. She holds on too tightly, maybe, and that's where she falls yeah. on into, yeah, this kind of this conflict between her and, and Mustafa, so, which is where the ethics comes in. But then, like you say, in terms of consent, right, do these people have consent, right? And I think it's an open question yeah. in the novel. I think it was important for me to always describe the Institute as this place that they could come and go. So the mortician Mustafa always reiterate oh you can leave if you want to if you don't want to partake in this you don't have to so it was important for me that mm-hmm. the residents there had choice or at least the illusion of choice and we do see them leave and come back to the institute especially for Daniel there's a part where he leaves and come back and Mustafa leaves and come back so I think they have this kind of play with consent and I think for and especially for Mustafa I think it's important mm-hmm. that he reiterates them or he reminds them throughout the novel you don't have to partake in this if you don't want to You can leave if you want to, but they choose to stay and some choose to leave for their own reasons. So I think that's where I try to skirt the ethics of that and kind of muddy the waters and leave it up to the reader to decide would they want to go to this kind of place and what might this place offer. If such a place like this exists, where might be the pitfalls as well Yeah, that we need to look out for? Yeah,
1: I definitely appreciated that kind of open-endedness right and I think you both do such a good job of giving the reader the room to figure things out themselves and I think that is triggered by the fact that you're complicating these very conventional understandings of death and grief and mortality and the supernatural and what I really appreciated it is that you didn't lean on cliche you know which is remarkable because it's so easy to slip into platitudes when discussing experiences of these kind. Like you have those stock phrases like they're in a better place. Everything happens for a reason. And it can come across as very disingenuous. But these experiences are so uncomfortable and chaotic and weird and indescribable that giving them that thoughts and prayers treatment, if you like, is sometimes the path of least resistance. So I'm curious to know, did you have to make a conscious effort to avoid cliché, to avoid the truisms? Tariq, do you want to take this one?
3: Hmm, That's a good question. I know very clearly that I had to make claims to like keep certain language. So maybe not. I think there was a uh, concern from like people who are reading your work in the industry of it about what is too much, what language or claims is could be platitudes or could be or like would a character from this place say something or think something like this, and a lot of the time it was me fighting to being like, yes they would they would think this they would. They have the intellectual capacity to think these things. Like They realize probably more than a lot of people their exact positionality in this world and how systemically things Mm -hmm. affect them. I think people on the outskirts of of empire or or the outskirts of the center look in and can see a lot clearly or diagnose a lot clearly the problems that ail society. I, I think that's... You know, I, I forget who's who makes that claim, but I think that's it's pretty it's <laughs> pretty clear. So that was probably like what I faced the most. People saying, Oh, I think I don't think this character has the capacity to think this about themselves in context to the larger world. And a lot of what I had to do with a lot of it was pushback, you know, pushing back against that. So I don't know if that <laughs> answers the question exactly.
1: No, it does. Jared, you want to have a go?
2: Yeah, no, that makes sense. You have to give, like you say, give mm-hmm. your characters the capacity to read what's happening to them. Yes, you may do it in their language or in the way that they speak or see the world, but they do. Everyone has that capacity. We're constantly doing it in our lives, you know, trying to re-understand our history now, if it comes back to us. And I think that's also the trick in humanizing the character, give them the capacity. Just because someone is from a certain place, right, or social position, doesn't mean that they don't have capacity to read what's happening to them. There's this knowledge, inbuilt knowledge, to understanding what's what's happening. Yeah, no, I totally resonate with that. In terms of staying away from cliche, it was hard. It was hard. I think I have it even in my kind of lived experience, like dealing with death. I don't know what to say. Sometimes just having your bodily presence there mm. is enough. And I think that's why I stuck to the body. Mm. Like, so often it seems like all these platitudes that you say when people pass away, and it doesn't, it never seems enough. But the presence, bodily presence, has a different. Has a different tenor to it and so yeah. the characters themselves this is i'm reminding now of the scene where like the magician walks with diane through the mud and so there's this like being with someone that is that you don't have to speak to the problem but if you're with the person if you show your presence if you alleviate that loneliness then that's at least something and you don't have to speak directly to it but it, it is at least something and you op- you're opening the space for maybe the person who is terminally ill or chronically ill to speak. And so I try to stay away from like those kind of deaf platitudes, oh, everything will be all right and things like that, by leaning on, yes, the botanical world, but also on the kind of moments in dialogue in conversation where people show their vulnerability, show their, their genuine emotion of maybe fear, what their mortality and how is the person that they're expressing that fear to how do they absorb that and how do they share their own fear and in this exchange of fear one another's fears we may reach some kind of well we're all scared in this thing called mortality we're all trying to improvise and piece together worldviews that might make it just that bit easier and sometimes what we've pieced together falls apart and we have to scramble for something new to hold on to. And that's so why I was very interested in how do people improvise on how they see the world on the death when their body fails them? How do they improvise when your body is throwing out these questions of death, of failure, of limitation? What do they scramble for and, and lean on? And sometimes the scrambling is for a lover or is for a worldview or is for a religion or is for psychedelic mushrooms, for example. So I was interested. <laughs> in how people piece together um, their way beyond the sphere, yeah.
1: Yeah. Related to that, perhaps, uh, but maybe not quite, I don't know, are the references to religion or religious motifs that I came across in both your novels. In fact, I think both of you make mention of an image to St. Peter, which made me think about how religion, particularly Judeo-Christian religions, to use that controversial term, inform how we think of death. It's almost as if we can't really escape it. I know you were raised Catholic, Jared, and Tariq, if I'm not mistaken, you were raised in the Baptist Church. Did those formative experiences with your respective religions inform any part of your novel? And further than that, have they informed your writing style and perhaps your sense of ideology as people uh jared do you want to take this
2: one i think for me especially the way that the novel opens it starts off in a room where you see symbols of the four major religions so i think for me writing it from that point i was kind of writing to myself okay this is where these are the four kind of pillars of the religions that dominate the world And as the characters then move, or the one character moves to the other room or moves beyond that room, you're kind of moving into, well, okay, what's beyond this? Or what's in all these religions that we can maybe take and see what happens outside of the dogma, outside of the history, outside of the rules. And I think because I grew up Catholic and I went through this process of disavowing my faith because it was homophobic and... Going through an atheistic worldview and then f- trying to find my spirituality again. I think that definitely informed this novel and what the characters also seek, this loss of worldview, and then to piece together a worldview as well. But at the same time, the the imagery in Catholicism, the kind of motifs as well, they're still powerful, they're still poetic. The kind of euphoric feeling, for example, that I used to feel while singing in the choir that's still something real. That's still a memory, right? Yes, I may not be in the church, but I have these, I've had these kind of transcendent moments while singing in the choir, for example, and having all these voices resound with me. So there's still something there that I wanted to use, even though the structure around whatever that kind of feeling or effect that was, even though the structure around that houses those kind of feelings is sort of homophobic or has all these problems with it. I still wanted to take that feeling, those kind of, feelings that religion taps into and then use it outside of it in the Institute. That reference to St. Peter, I've also grown up with that painting. My grandmother has a painting of St. Peter in her house, so it was also me drawing on this, this iconography that I've grown up with which is kind of a violent iconography You think every year you go through Jesus' crucifixion around around holy weeks you are reliving this kind of death and rebirth as a Catholic at least in the church and as a child you grow up with that you're seeing how it affects not only your family but like the old woman that greets you outside of church and you seeing how there's this bond and there's this collective emotion that you go through in mourning, for example, Jesus' crucifixion, but then also in celebrating it as well. So I was just interested in how iconography as a whole can can allow people to travel together through different emotions.
1: Tariq?
3: <sighs> Ooh, um yeah, yeah, similar kind of experience. I grew up Baptist, which, you know, coming down South means something totally different than I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought um, my my church was pretty um, radical in a sense in that uh, you know my pastor was more concerned with kind of the social workings of Brooklyn, how religion kind of works into that. So like I went to Sunday school and not not Sunday school uh, after school kind of program. Even the the class leader there was you know gave us a very open sort of imaginative idea of what heaven is or what heaven could be for you you know in talking with like my religious friend i realized like that's an oddity and a rarity you know my experience wasn't necessarily as oppressive but then in what the church at large has done and what a lot of churches the identities they exclude and christianity's sort of role in imperialism shifting of modern history it does play a role so I think you know very directly as we spoke about the attention to like African spirituality in direct opposition to Christian ideals of death as the end death is this final thing yeah I think writing into that you know not only pushes back but um again I think about like in Santeria the Virgin Mary worshiped is basically a composite of Mary and Oshun or Yamaya. So just sort of thinking of the story as that, as this kind of syncretic kind of um not marrying of the two, but like this is the reality. This is what this kind of social reality, the spiritual reality has created. And I think a lot of us, you know, throughout the diaspora, but especially in the United States, I think we're all searching for or looking towards something else. Because a lot of us are entrenched in spirituality. A lot of us are entrenched in the church or that that feeling of believing in something more than ourselves. Because we have to, we've we've had to historically. So I think a lot of us, you know, like I seek the feeling I get here in my church choir, the transcendent experience of being brought to the verge of tears or hearing a sermon and nearly being brought to tears i think you know that feeling of again like believing in something larger than yourself especially in a social reality where like we are literally lazarus in a sense that's why mm-hmm. the african-american community like we identify with lazarus so much because it's all about redemption it's all about being dead and coming back and having to come back and you think about death a lot of us died socially a social death in terms of Orlando Patterson during slavery right and yet you know our redemption our sort of history from that has been all about fighting out of that shame or redeeming that shame so I think we all kind of are searching for something else but we realize kind of Christianity's you know its limitations its hindrances its ulterior motives at times yeah so I think a lot of us look to something else and are searching for something else and I think alternative spiritual practices uh returning to different practices uh a lot of people seeking maybe unorthodox or conspiratorial (laughs) things to believe in you know it's it all comes out of that longing um yeah one hour
1: is not enough I swear (laughs) there's so many directions I want to take this conversation in but to conclude and we have to keep this a bit brief your novels just from a perspective point of view some characters are written in the third person while others appear in the first person and if memory serves me correctly Tariq the chapters on Audrey are mostly written in the third person while Key and Collie's chapters mostly appear in the first with some inclusions of the second. And then Jared, the Mortician and Christopher's sections are in the first person while the other five characters employ a first person perspective. I tried to speculate the reasons for that, but I don't want to sound like a Reddit conspiracy theorist. So could you just both very briefly (laughs) tell me what was the decision-making behind those choices? I think I'll give this to Tariq and then Jared.
3: So a lot of the book like right, it's it's first person, but it's sneakily second person because Kali is telling us the story, but he's he's talking to Key, he's talking to his mom, and then Key at a point it's first person, but then near to not to spoil anything, but closer to the end she's speaking to Kali, and that was really to just keep this kind of conversation across time and space, <laughs> to keep that kind of conversation going, and it worked well because I was able to write two coming-of-age stories in, not in one, but you know, you get Kali as a teen and you get Kia as this kind of young 20-something, and there's so many kind of mirrors in their lives. There's so many moments that are speaking back. Um, I hope the effect that it had is, is it kind of bleeds into each other. You know, it kind of becomes, instead of two, it becomes this one. And Audrey is the the ancestor. Audrey's, I mean, you know, she's not past yet, but she is the, the elder. So she's the one who came to New York. She's the one who brought the family from the South to New York. She's the matriarch. And she, she sees all of this go down. I think it's real interesting to kind of have her be the... The frame, in a sense, because she's the the first to begin that she knows of to, to see ghosts in this line, and and with her I'm able to kind of zoom out. You know, a lot of Key and Kali is very like up close, but with her I'm able to kind of zoom out and show parts of the story that I I, I couldn't show through either of their kind of perspectives.
1: Cool, Jared.
2: Yeah, no, I like that idea of like characters speaking to each other mm-hmm. through history. Um, it's a nice contrast to mine where like all the characters are in one space. So I think the choice to pick different perspectives was like to give the sense that right. at this institute, m- multiple things are happening. So sometimes the same event will be recorded by, but by, from a different perspective, for example. So the the book, at least the way I imagine it, because of the multiple perspectives, the book has this kind of circular, like it, it moves forward, but it kind of double backs on itself at certain moments because this event has to be retold from another character's perspective or experienced from another character's perspective. And so with the individual character sections, Diane, Tobias, Angelique, Daniel and Lucas. I really wanted to delve into their memories as well. And what are they thinking about when they're at the Institute? But while also using their language, I really wanted to challenge myself to, okay, if I was this character how would I speak and I was really trying to like if you could say method act a little bit like really try to say okay how do I speak like this character without caricaturing them what is the fine line how do I approach that line but don't go over it kind of thing whereas with the omniscient narrator it was it allowed me similar to Tyreek's kind of like zooming out like a narrator that is able to zoom out kind of traverse the space and really zoom into kind of microscopic worlds but then also give a, a bird's eye view and move from room to room and I think I really enjoyed the kind of as an uh, omniscient narrator moving through the institute and like from room to room and I'm kind of mapping it as I'm writing it and it's kind of as I'm writing it the place is filling itself out or fleshing itself out for me as this omniscient narrator. so that was productive for me as an omniscient moving like a roving eye to really get a sense of this space but then the reason to like have the mortician and mustafa in the third person was to show their level of intimacy they're narrated together they're always kind of completing each other's sentences or wondering what the other is thinking and so having them in the third person sections is kind of me showing their inherent intimacy their back and forth and the way their bodies even respond to one another, I was interested in exploring that, the way they kind of always kind of leaning towards each other or turn to listen for the other. And I wanted to get that sense in the, in the roving eye of the narrator. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. Honestly, um, two of the most codependent people in South African literature, that's <laughs> what I have to say about them. <laughs> Problems. <laughs> And now we move on to the tribute section. The empty chair for this episode is Chinese writer, journalist, and editor Dong Yu Yu, who's been detained since February 2022 on charges of espionage. This occurred after he met a Japanese diplomat for lunch in Beijing. If he is convicted of these charges, he faces the possibility of between 10 years and life imprisonment. In South Africa, there was a time when telling the truth resulted in detainment, violence, or death. As writers, journalists, and media workers, it is crucial for us to stand in solidarity with our comrades, subject to attack for simply doing their jobs. I'm going to ask Jared and Tyreek to read us their tributes, which will be followed by mine.
3: Hey, okay. so I went with the great Audrey Lord. I chose her piece, On My Way Out, I Passed Over You in the Verizonal Bridge, one of my favorites, see so, yeah. The broad water drew us, and the space growing enough green to feed ourselves over two seasons. Now sulfur fuels burn in New Jersey, and when I wash my hands at the garden hose, the earth runs off bright yellow. The bridge disappears, only a lowering sky in transit. So do we blow the longest suspension bridge in the world up from the middle, or will it be bombs at the Highland Toll Plaza, mortars over Grimes Hill, flak shrieking through the streets of Rosebank, the home of the Staten Island Ku Klux Klan, while skyroaches napalm the Park Hill projects? We live on the edge of manufacturing, tomorrow or the unthinkable, made common as plants and weed by our act of not thinking, of taking only what is given. Wintry Poland survives, the bastardized prose of the New York Times, while Soweto is a quaint heat treatment in some exotic but safely capitalized city, where the hero children's bones molder unmarked and the blood of my sister in exile, Winnie Mandela shows, in her steps slow, and a band in waterless living, her youngest daughter is becoming a poet. I am writing these words as a root map, an artifact for survival, a chronicle of buried treasure, a mourning for this place we are about to be leaving, a rudder for my children, your children, our lovers, our hopes, braided from the dull wharfs of Tompkinsville in Zimbabwe, Chad, and Oh, Willie, sweet little brother with the snap in your eyes, what walls are you covering now with your visions of revolutionary? the precise needs of our mother earth the cost of false bread and have you learned to nourish your sisters at last as well as to treasure them and i'm skipping ahead a bit history is not kind to us we restitch it with living past memory forward into desire into the panic articulation of want without having or even the promise of getting And I dream of our coming together, encircled, driven, not only by love, but by lust for a working tomorrow, the flights of this journey, mapless, uncertain, and necessary as water.
2: This tribute is a poem taken from Jacques Coutier's collection An Illuminated Darkness. It's titled Still at War with the Stoics. It's not that I don't understand your admiration for them. I have noted their dignified silence in the face of suffering. Have noted, also, the accuracy of their assessments. How love remains an experiment, always on the alert, always at risk of collapsing into mere biology. How the beloved body is always breaking down, at a rate that is unpredictable, but steady and sure nonetheless. I have read the dire predictions in all the mirrors that I cannot see, and yet I remain mostly unimpressed by their dogged endurance, by that blank-faced, solemn turn away from the body, from pleasure and sorrow into virtue, into the heroism of I can't complain, of just getting on with it. Instead, I sit with the drama queens, with the hysterics, the drunks, the ones who rage and rage, hoping that even rage will become something precise one day and almost noble. Do you remember that time, sitting next to me by sheer chance on a plane, drinking unpaid for whiskey, and me bursting into tears in the middle of reading my own poem aloud to you for god's sake such silliness and yet we knew we knew it was real a poem even if not first rate had found the place where love had been imprisoned and set it free dispersing all that had been repressed back into the world again transformed
1: thank you So, the reading I've chosen is by Ethiopian poet Maten Shifaro, and it's called 20 Questions for Your Mother. When armed men came, where did you hide? I didn't. I was taught to stand. They were looking for something in the dark, and I was the light. Even now, their footsteps can be heard right before sunrise. I see only morning lights. What about your father? He sits on a cloud. I grieve every day. And your mother. I woke up at dawn to wash clothes and stretch them to dry. I cleaned, cooked and warmed the house. The mornings were so quiet and I could hear my heartbeat and merchants traveling from Karin. I hid behind open doors to read and write. She was awake. Tell me about your friends. Some got lost in the fight. Some brought back children not their own. Others were promised to men in silk suits and lovely pastries. We ate ice cream and went to the cinema. We spoke other languages. We rushed back home before curfew and never questioned the strident noise of bullets that came after hours. Who saved you? God was always there. What of your children? I taught them how to read so they didn't have to hide. Who are you? I am free. And on that note, I would like to end this episode of the Empty Chair podcast. Jared and Tyreek, thank you so much for your time and most importantly, your work. Despite the very serious and difficult and somber nature of the themes in your novel, I quite had a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed speaking (laughs) to you both.
3: (laughs) Likewise. You're two of the boldest
1: writers I've had the pleasure of reading in a while and I Really look forward to reading more from you in the future, and I wish you the absolute best. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Kanya, for the conversation. Appreciate it. It was lovely.
0: Thank you, Kanya, Jared, and Tyreek, for this gracious, fascinating, and thought-provoking conversation. Thank you to Andre Burnett for producing this episode. Thanks to executive producer Lara Buxbaum, to SA board members Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of PEN South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulaudzi and Jahan jones Radkowski for their support. Join us next week for a new episode of Season 8 of The Empty Chair, A Transatlantic Conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech, and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the US Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by PEN South Africa, and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government.